How y'all doing? Good, 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 good. I asked that question before Sunday school this morning. And then I had to say, well, if you weren't good, would you really tell us? Um, you know, because most people probably wouldn't. You know, that's just kind of our natural greeting, you know. How are you? I'm good. But are you? Eh, well, I hope you really are. I really hope you are. Um, so, I'm glad to be here with you all today. Today's a good day. Um, and I mean that. Um, I, I don't know. I'll probably get in trouble. I don't care. Um, you all know I love my parents, right? My mom's rolling her eyes already because she thinks she knows what's coming. Um, today's a special day. Uh-huh. Because that woman who has the privilege of calling herself my mother, yes, today is her birthday. Uh-huh. Yes. So, happy birthday to my mother. Okay. Well, anyway, she's going to be like, Jared, why'd you say anything? Well, because I can. People, people, they give me a microphone, so uh, I don't know. So, anyway, um, yes, today, today is a good day. I'm going to do this a little bit different than we normally do, and I know y'all just sat down, and I had all week, like all week, I thought, I need to send Laura a message and be like, don't let them sit after that last song, because I want to read our scripture right off the beginning. So, I'm going to ask y'all to stand up with me again. Um, you're up, down, you're getting your workout today, so um, we're going to read uh, God's word today. If you want to know where we're going to be, it's going to be Matthew, Matthew chapter 14. Uh, we're going to read the first 12 verses today. We've kind of been away from Matthew for a while now. We've looked at the book of Ruth, but we're jumping back in, and we're going to keep on going through the book of Matthew here. So Matthew chapter 14 will be our text today. We're going to look at the first 12 verses, if you'd like to follow along, and I hope you will. And I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. This is John the Baptist, he told his servants. He has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had arrested John, chained him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, since John had been telling him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Though Herod wanted to kill John, he feared the crowd, since they regarded John as a prophet. When Herod's birthday celebration came, Herodias' daughter danced before them and pleased Herod. So he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she answered, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Although the king regretted it, he commanded that it be granted because of his oaths and his guests. So he sent orders and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Then his disciples came, removed the corpse, buried it, and went and reported to Jesus. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I'm just, I, I'm, I am thankful today. Um, Lord, I truly am. Um, and I'm thankful because of who you are and what you've done. Um, that despite the fact that I know my sin, Lord, at least I know Part of my sin. There's part of me, I'm sure I'm blind to even the ways in which I rebel against you. But Lord, I, I'm thankful that while I know my sin, I also know a Redeemer who is greater than my sin. Um, Lord, so for that today, I, I just want to praise you. I want to thank you. And Lord, as we, as we, open, as we open this word, as we, we look at what your word says today, um, I pray that you would use it. I pray that you would use it to teach us, to correct us, 
to rebuke us, to train us in righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would use this word today to show us who you are and to show us who we are. And then, Lord, I pray that that would cause us to repent, to turn to you, and to follow after you. So, Lord, use your word today as I know you will. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. New series today. We're diving back into Matthew, like I said. Um, Now, whenever you see this slide up here on the screen, right, it says meals, miracles, and messages. Um, Anybody want to guess some of the things that we're going to be covering throughout this series? Feeding of the 5,000. Yeah, so we'll be talking about feeding of the 5,000 and feeding of 4,000. We're going to cover both of those here. Yeah, so I kind of figured somebody would get that. I was really hoping somebody would say Lord's Supper, but we're not there yet. Um, We'll get there, though. So, yeah, feeding of 5,000, feeding of 4,000 will be here. We're going to see Jesus walk on water. We're going to see Jesus deliver some messages and receive some messages. Um, We're going to have a good time looking at these meals, miracles, and messages. And hopefully you get that point because we're going to be in this series until we start talking about Christmas. Y'all know what? That's not that far away, though. So um, there's your warning. Like, we're midway through October right now, y'all. So um, anyway, so even if you're not sure what all that is, we're going to get there. But today, we're going to be covering this difficult passage that we just read a moment ago. Um, And it would be really easy to look at this, this text, this passage that we just read, and we could ask ourselves, why in the world did God see fit to preserve this Like, what in the world is this in the Bible for? Like, what in the world is going on? So, if we really believe, though, that all of God's Word, and I know that I've used this this introduction before, but if we believe that all of God's Word is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, then what does this teach us? How does this passage rebuke us? How does this passage correct us? How does this, we, we just read about this guy being beheaded, how does this train us in righteousness? And I think we need to ask those questions as we start looking at this text. So, um, I I started thinking about this and I thought, what do we need to know? What do we as the church today, what do we need to know? What do we need to learn from this passage? Um, And there were several different ways that I thought we could go uh, as we we looked at this. One was the historicity. Like, this is a historical account, right? Right? Here in this passage, there are real people in real places doing real things in a real time, right? You all see that. And even if you're saying, well, I don't know if, well, can we just trust the Bible on this? Even if you don't, we talk about this in Sunday school, how you can use outside resources and look and see how this matches up with all the historical evidence we have of the time. There was this guy, this is not, listen, this is not just some abstract book of details, but what we do know is that there, it is a historical fact that there was a guy named Herod Antipas who ruled over this part of Israel at this time, and the events that we find here align with other historical books that tell us about Herod Antipas. Like, this is a historical book. So we learned that the Bible, when it speaks of history, it's accurate, So that's one thing we could take away from this. But I don't want to dive in that much to the historicity of this today. We could also look at this text and we learn something of the importance of our government or our governmental leadership. Like, I hope you see that. The the importance of our governmental leadership. And how applicable is this today when we have some ability, we as as Americans, we have some ability and really some responsibility in selecting the leaders who, who rule over us. We do have that responsibility. So we select those who govern on our behalf. And we need leaders who are not consumed with themselves or what the crowd thinks, but leaders who will do what is right even when that's hard. That's what we need. 
We don't need somebody who's going to do what they want, when they want. We need leaders who are going to do what is right, even when it's hard. That's what we should look for. So we could talk about the importance of governmental leadership. That's not what I want to focus on today either. We could use this as a, as a passage that teaches us something about the importance of a godly spouse. Um, certainly that's evident here. I mean, Herod was lacking in that area. He did not have a godly spouse. And because he had a spouse who was not godly, he had a greater temptation to sin. And let, just let that be a lesson to you. Like, you see the importance of a godly spouse, especially for those of you who are looking for a spouse or um, would like someday to be married. Like, just see the importance of this. Like, see the importance of a godly spouse. So we could focus on that. We could focus on the importance of purity. We could certainly focus on that also. I mean, here we're going to see that Herod allows lust to get the best of him. And it leads him to an increasing sin. We could focus on that also. But what I want to focus on today, what I would really like us to dial in on today, is the result of Herod's sin. That's what I want us to dial in on today. Because we see it. It's in our face as we read this passage. And what I think we can see as we look at Herod's sin, we can see a similar pattern or similar, similar results in our own lives. We can see similar things happen as we sin, as we fall short. And for this reason, I hope that we see how we must first, we need to avoid sin. Um, I think we need to take extreme lengths to avoid sin. Uh, I think we should do everything we can to avoid it. But not only that, I also want us to see that when we do inevitably fall into sin, because by the way, you will. Like, I don't care how good you think you are. You will sin. You are a sinner. Like, your flesh is, is tainted. It is, it, you have this automatic disposition towards sin. Now, by God's grace, we can be forgiven and our nature can be changed. But, but, what we need to see is that when we do sin, we need to confess all known sin so that it will be put to death before we are. We need to confess our sin. Put it out so that, not, so that it doesn't just linger in our lives, eating at us, destroying us. We need to confess sin, repent of it, and follow after the God who loves us. So what I want us to see today is these five, um, you could call it six, results of, of Herod's sin that's going to help us really understand the results of our own sin. Okay, So I want us to see Herod's sin, how that resulted, and then at the end I'm going to try to tie this all together and show you how those same results will play out in your life. They will play out in your life. Okay, So the first thing we find here is that Herod's sin led to superstition and paranoia. Herod's sin here leads to superstition and paranoia. We read this just a minute ago, but verse 1, it said, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. This is John the Baptist, he told his servants. He has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, does that sound like a superstitious guy? I sure think it does. Okay? Now, first thing we find is that there's this report being given to Herod. Here's this message, if you will. Okay? So here's one of these messages that we get. All right, so here's this message being taken to Herod, and what is the message that he hears? Because apparently Herod has heard something about the miraculous things that Jesus has done. Right? He identifies the miraculous powers that are at work in Jesus, which is why he says it must be a resurrected John. So he says there's miraculous powers at work, and he doesn't deny that. Y'all catch that, right? Like he doesn't deny that there's miraculous things. He knows that what Jesus has done is undeniable. The power that's at work in Jesus is obvious. And he doesn't even try to push that away. He doesn't try to deny that. But instead, he tries to reason why it happened. Now, what is this message, though? What is this message of these miraculous, miraculous things? Well, this is a good opportunity to talk about the literature that we're reading, right? So uh, 
this has been months ago now, but if you remember, I told you Matthew. Matthew isn't really chronological, okay? Matthew doesn't say this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Then, that's not the way he organizes his material. Instead, he groups things into grand themes and lumps them together, okay? Now, that's helpful whenever you're a preacher, <laughs> Because you have these themes, and you're like, hey, let's cover these themes, okay? So we can look at what, what Jesus did here. We can look at how Matthew organized his material, and we can say, okay, well, here's this theme, all right? So, but whenever we start thinking, what is the message that Herod had heard here, we need, to, we need to kind of get a timeline. So if we were to use a different gospel account, if we were to flip over to Mark, and we look at his chronology, which tends to be much more chronological, um, we can get some idea, maybe what Herod heard here, what these miraculous things that Herod has in mind are. Okay, so if we were just to look at Mark's account, his, his gospel account, we find that in chapter 1, here Jesus, he casts out sickness, he exercises demons. Then in chapter 2, he forgives sins, he heals a paralyzed man. Chapter 4, he commands the wind and the waves and they obey. Chapter 5, he drives out demons, he heals a woman with chronic bleeding that nobody else seems to be able to help. Then he raises this young girl from the dead. Y'all, that's a big deal. Like, raising someone from the dead is a big deal. And then you get chapter 6, and he commissions his disciples, he commissions the twelve to preach, to drive out demons, and to anoint the sick with oil, presumably to heal them. And they do all of this in Jesus' power. Like, Herod hears what's going on here. He hears the power that Jesus has. And he knows it's real, and he has to ascribe it to something. He has to give some kind of... Answer. By the way, I didn't even go into the unspecified miracles. Like, there's places where it just says, and other things were done. We don't have time to get into all of it, is basically what Mark's saying. Like, there's way more that we could list out here. And all of these things happen. Herod hears about it. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Everybody loves when you cough in a microphone. Did it turn off on me again? Oh, goodness sakes. <coughs> Technology is amazing when it functions properly. <coughs> so is my throat. Like, come on. Excuse me. All right. Where were we? All right. So, Herod here believes that this is John the Baptist being raised from the dead, which has somehow endowed him with this superhuman power. Okay? That's what he believes. That's how he makes this seem logical, if that's logical at all. Um, Now, where does this belief come from? Why does he think this? Well, there's a couple different theories. Um, I'll look at that. All right. Where does it come from? couple different theories. First, um, some scholars believe that the reason he thought this was because in this area there was this pagan belief of reincarnation. Now, that doesn't answer the supernatural power, but it does say, well, some in that area believe that if you died, then your inner person took up residence in another being. And he said, well, that must be who this Jesus is. I still don't know how he got the supernatural power from that, but that's what some believe, and that's what some scholars think was happening here. But the second, second idea that came up was that some say that Herod must have just felt so guilty about what he did with John that he began to believe in things that before he would have never even dreamt of. And I I tend to lean towards that. Now, some believe that Herod, Herod was linked with the Sadducees, and we can talk about that later if you want to, but some believe that he was linked with the Sadducees, but that's important because the Sadducees, they denied the concept of a resurrection altogether, which... If Jesus, if this was John raised from the dead and you're a Sadducee, well, then you better believe they probably think he has supernatural power. So, yeah, that would make sense. Okay. And some say that it was his guilty conscience just eating at him so much that he believed these things that he had formerly denied. Regardless of why he believed this, Herod believed that John had been raised from the dead and that this resurrection was the cause of his supernatural power. Because he was raised from the dead. Now, there's a lot of things I disagree with Herod on. (laughs) 
I hope that's not a shock to you. There are some things I would disagree with Herod on, but one thing on which I would agree with Herod is that those who are raised from the dead tend to exude supernatural power. And some of you get that, and some of you don't. But those that are raised from the te- dead tend to exude supernatural power. And the reason I say that is because I know one who was raised from the dead, and you better believe he has supernatural power. Okay? Now, where I would argue with Herod is cause and effect. Which one is which? See, Herod said that Jesus, he had supernatural power because he had been raised from the dead. I would contend that Jesus was raised from the dead because he already had the supernatural power. And I think that's an important distinction to make here. Okay. So, Herod's superstition here, I think it's pretty obvious. Herod was superstitious as a result of what he saw in Jesus' life. But we also need to acknowledge his paranoia. Now, why would Herod, why would Herod be concerned about John? I mean, especially if what we see from Jesus' miracles here is what, what Herod has in mind. Okay, why would he be concerned here? Because what we see from Jesus is he's out helping people. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's doing good things with the supernatural power that's at work in him, right? So why would Herod be concerned? Well, and the answer is because he had a guilty conscience about what he did to John. He knew his guilt. He knew what he did was wrong. And now this superhuman John was going to help some, but you better believe he's upset with Herod and he's going to come and he's going to get his payback. And that's what Herod is worried about. And really, um, I think this paranoia was evident from the historical accounts we have of Herod. Um, If you remember all the way back to January, I had to look back in my notes to see when we talked about this. It was all the way back in January. We talked about Herod with the massacre of these boys in Bethlehem. And I told you that this was right in line with, with Herod's character. Um, because what we know of Herod, Herod uh, from the histor- extra-biblical accounts, from the historical events that happened around Herod's life, is that he had his own sons and his wife executed because he was concerned about his power. Herod was paranoid. Herod was always looking over his shoulder, thinking somebody was out to get him, and now he feels guilty because of what he did to John, so you better believe he's looking over his shoulder, and he's worried about what's going on. As one author puts it, he says, like most weak men, Herod feared to be thought that he was weak. <laughs> Herod was showing how weak he was because of his fear. And we find that Herod's sin led to this superstition and this paranoia. His sin led him to this. Now we're going to talk about, later on, we're going to talk about how that applies to us. So just keep that in mind as we go through this. All right, but the second thing we find about Herod is that his sin led to a hardened heart. Herod's sin led to a hardened heart. Verse 3, we find that Herod had already arrested and imprisoned John because Herod had divorced his wife, to marry this woman named Herodias. Okay, now, the bigger problem here is who Herodias was. Herodias was actually the wife of Herod's half-brother, Philip. So, Herodias is married to his brother, and he takes her as his wife anyway. And John didn't back down from the problem, did he? As a matter of fact, John was kind of blunt about it. Not kind of, he was very much in your face. And what he did was he called a sin a sin. He said, Herod, you are a leader of people and you are living in sin. Like what you are doing is not right. And he didn't back down from that. He let Herod know it. I mean, Herod himself wanted to be identified both with the Jews and with Rome. So he was trying to play this middle ground anyway. But here he's living in obvious sin and John lets him know it. Now, that made me ask the question, should we call a sin a sin? Should we call a sin a sin? Well, sure. Why would we not? I absolutely think we should call sin a sin. Now, 
the question then does, does that give us license to be very in your face, in your face like John? John was very blunt, very to the point. Does that give us license to be like that? Well, I would contend that the circumstances are going to need to dictate the way we respond. Circumstances are going to dictate how we approach that. Okay? When we call sin a sin, I think that we would be wise to do a few things. One, we need to be introspective, as we're going to see here in just a moment. But two, we need to ask ourselves, what is our goal? Why are we naming this sin? What is, what is really our motivation? Is, is my motivation to belittle the person who is in sin, or is my motivation to restore a brother or sister? Because that's what we're told to do. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person. Restore such a person. With a gentle spirit, watching out for yourself so that you also won't be tempted. See, if we look at Jesus' example, example, he was always, always gracious. He was always gentle when dealing with sin. Always. Um, this is something our elders talked about just the other night. And how, um, and I think the example that brought, was brought up was, uh, uh, was the woman caught in the act of adultery. She was brought before these people who were ready to stone her to death. And Jesus steps in and he says, you who is without sin, cast the first stone. And you can just almost hear the stones falling out of their hands as they drop them and walk away. Like, we get it. Jesus was gentle. He was patient with this woman who was caught in sin. And he loved her. And at the end he says, woman, where are those who condemn you? Then neither do I. Go and sin no more. So should we call a sin a sin? I think the answer is yes. But what is our goal? Is our goal to throw stones at them or is our goal to see them restored? I think that's an important question to ask whenever we approach a brother or sister caught in sin. What is our goal? And the second thing we need to understand is, or we need to ask ourselves is, how do I need to be introspective in this, right? We talked about this here a while back with with Jesus' example, right? Go and try to take the speck out of your brother's eye while there's a plank in your own eye. Take the plank out first. It doesn't say don't help your brother. Don't help, it doesn't say don't help your sister. It says remove the plank from your eye. Be introspective first. Then go restore your brother. Then go restore your sister. Be introspective. So, should we call sin, sin? Yes. But how we do it and our motivation I think is very important. Verse 5 tells us that Herod... Herod wanted to kill John, but there was a problem because he feared the crowd since they regarded John as a prophet. So Herod was afraid of the crowd. Now, what we learn again from Mark's account of this passage is that Herod was at least curious. At the very least, he was curious about what Jesus had to say. All right, so Mark 6.20, it says, Because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and he, yet he liked to listen to him. So Herod here at least was interested in what John had to say. But the reason he didn't kill him was because of the people. He knew enough of the truth to feel some guilt, some remorse over what he'd done. Over the way he was living. He knew enough just to feel some guilt. But it didn't change him. He was just perplexed. But his sin led him to harden his heart. And that prevented him from doing the right thing again and again and again. See, Herod was more concerned with power and what the crowds thought than he was about doing what is right and wrong. Interestingly enough, uh, the people, the crowd, they were the reason for both John not being killed initially, and then later on we're going to see that the crowd is the reason that John was killed in the end. So a little bit of irony there. But the point is that because of Herod's sin, his heart was hardened and he failed to do the right thing again and again. He loved his sin and the applause of men more than he loved righteousness. 
He loved the applause of people more than he loved doing what was right. Herod's sin led him to superstition and paranoia, led him to a hardened heart. Third, Herod's sin led him to more poor choices. And this is something that plays out again and again throughout the Bible. You see somebody caught in sin, and that leads to another sin, which leads to another sin, which leads to another, and you get the domino effect or the snowball effect, right? You all are familiar with what happens here. Verse 6, the scene changes, and here Herod is at a birthday party, and his stepdaughter dances for, for the people, right? So this stepdaughter dances. And here is just one of the many poor choices that Herod makes. Now, he... He has this party most likely as an attempt to look powerful or important. Um, but here, it's this stepdaughter, Herodias' daughter, who dances. And now, this is most likely, according to um, other documents, this is most likely a, a woman named Salome. Okay, So she gets up, she dances for the people, um, and the indication is that this was some sort of seductive dance. That's the indication from the text. Okay, And Herod is here. Not only married to his brother's wife, but now lusting after this girl who is his stepdaughter and his brother's daughter. One sin led to another sin, and we're going to see more and more as we go further here. So verse 7, because he's pleased with this dance, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Now, whenever we look at a passage with with somebody who clearly screws up. I, I, I like to be a little bit gracious about it, because I'll be honest with you, I'm kind of a dummy. So I mess up more often than I get things right, okay? And I, I can admit that. I'm, I think I can handle that. Um, so I like to be gracious whenever considering somebody like this. Like, generally, there's other circumstances around what they did, and it's like, well, I see why they made that mistake. Um, but if we're just looking at Herod here, like, I don't know how to say it, but this is just stupid. Like, I don't mean to be overly, oh no, I'm going to be overly critical. It was just, that's just not smart. Like, he says, I'll give you whatever you want. Look, even the vilest people in Scripture, like, they generally are smarter than this. Like, they, they're smarter than this. And even if we go back to the Old Testament rulers who, who said, look, you did something great and I'm going to reward you for that, even they put a caveat on it and they would say, up to half of my kingdom. Like, I'll give you half, but I'm still keeping my power in some way. Herod's not that smart, apparently. Because Herod does something really dumb here, and he says, Look, I'll give you whatever you want, no qualifications, no limitations, whatever you want. I'm so pleased with what you just did. I'll do whatever. In verse 8, Salome, assuming that's who this is, is prompted by her mother and demands John the Baptist's head on a platter. Demands his head on a platter. Now... Apparently, John's criticism didn't just upset Herod. Apparently, it upset Herodias a little bit. Because <laughs> now she's demanding his head. And in verse 9, although Herod regretted it, he commanded that it be granted because of his oaths and because of his guests. See, Herod's sin, his poor choices at the beginning of this, have led to more and more and more poor choices. Again and again and again, he is making mistakes. And it all started with him making the wrong choice and taking his brother's wife. It started with one sin that has led to more and to more. His sin has clouded his judgment so that he continues to sin. And this is the way sin tends to work. We mess up. We do what God has commanded us not to do, or we don't do what God has commanded us to do. We rebel against God's will. And what we see is that then we're tempted to do it again and again and again. And it becomes harder as you go further into this. 
And there are other examples of this we can look at all throughout Scripture. David is probably the poster child for this. Like, go to King David. You'll see how he makes one mistake, which leads to another, which leads to another. And we see that Herod's sin has led him to more and more poor choices because of his hardened heart. Fourth thing we find here about Herod's sin is that it led to death and destruction. Herod's sin leads to death and destruction. Verse 10, he sent orders to ha- and had John beheaded in the prison. So this is something we've talked about here recently. Sin leads to death. Now, some of you are saying, well, I've sinned before and nobody died because of it. Well, I get what you're saying. Maybe nobody was beheaded because of what you did, but I promise you there is death and destruction as a result of your sin. I know because that's what the Bible tells us. Like, death is a result of sin. Sin leads to death. And that's the truth we looked at in the first chapter of Ruth. I mean, but as I look at this, I, I had to ask myself, like, did John do anything wrong here? Did John do anything wrong? If we're talking about sin leading to death, did John himself, did he do anything wrong? Because he's the one that died. Did he do anything wrong? Now, we could say that maybe he was, uh, um, maybe he was a little too insulting. Uh, maybe you could say that. But was he clearly sinful here? I would say the answer is no. He didn't. There's nothing that is obviously sinful here in what he did. He said that Herod was wrong for doing what Herod was doing, which was true. So then, let's ask the question. Was sin the cause of John's death? The answer is yes. Yes, sin was the direct, like, sin directly resulted in John's death. Directly. So, one thing... I'm just going to tell you a little bit of my testimony, um, a little bit of my story. One thing that has completely revolutionized um, the way I look at things um, was, was the day, and I know I've shared this with you all before, but it was the day that I realized that my sin had consequences. Now, that may sound obvious. Of course sin has consequences. But see, I'd always thought sin has consequences for me. See, that's not what happens in this text, is it? Herod's sin has consequences for John and for others as we get further into this. Herod's sin has consequences for others. See, what what I realized was my sin certainly has consequences for me, but my sin also has consequences for you, for my brothers and sisters. Like both my biological brother who happens to be in the room, love you man, um, and my, my spiritual family, y'all are my brothers and sisters, like, my sin has consequences for you. And your sin has consequences for me. Like, this revolutionized the way that I thought about things. I, I remember the night that God opened my eyes to this and how it just, it shook me. Like, I'm not trying to be, like, hyperbolic. I'm not trying to exaggerate. This literally changed my life. Like, this had ramifications for every area of my life because instead of instead of the hyper individualization that we're so accustomed to in our society today like it it, we say it's about me like i do this for me i do that for me i do all of this stuff so that i can grow so that i can do better but or even my sin like i I knew that my sin had consequences for me and i thought well i'll deal with those consequences i know what i'm getting into Or even then, I might just take God's grace lightly, and I would say, well, you know what? Yeah, I know that I screwed up, but God's going to forgive me. Okay, I'm forgiven of this. What I failed to realize, though, is that it wasn't all about me. Yeah, I know you're really surprised that I would say that. What I failed to realize is that it wasn't all about me. My sin had consequences for, (laughs) for my brothers and sisters. Now, at that time, I wasn't... 
Um, I didn't have any kids, but I was married. Whenever God opened my eyes to this. And I broke down and I cried because I said, my sin is destroying my wife. Men in the room, like you have a tremendous responsibility to lead your families. Um, If you're married, you have a tremendous responsibility to love your wife. Um, And your sin, even if nobody else knows about it, will destroy your family. I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to be honest with you about what God's word says. Ladies in the room, your sin doesn't just affect you. It affects your kids. It affects your grandkids. It affects your husband. It affects your friends. Kids in the room, you might think, well, I'm not that important. I don't think you understand who you are then. You're an image bearer of God. Your sin has effects on your parents on your friends, on your church. Your sin has consequences for others. And see, that revolutionized the way I saw things. You know, I broke down and I wept. And I don't just mean I wept like I shed a few tears. Oh no, I I sobbed that night. Because I realized that my sin was killing those around me. The things I loved and I held dear to myself, I was killing them. I was destroying them. Because of my sin. Yeah, I hope you see how important that is. John may not have sinned to bring on his beheading. But Herod did. And it led to the destruction of somebody else. So before you start thinking, well, I'll deal with the consequences of my sin because it's mine. And, you know, it's about my, my personal relationship. Which is true. Don't get me wrong. There's a personal aspect of faith. But it's not all about you. You are a part of a body. You are a part of a family. And what you do affects those around you, even when you don't see how. So please, please, I'm pleading with you. Understand that your sin has consequences for those around you. Has consequences for those around you. Okay? Here John dies. And yes, he was a sinner, in need of God's grace, but it, he died as a direct result of Herod's sin. But it gets worse because in verse 11, his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Yeah. So not only did John die, but now these people are celebrating death. They are celebrating destruction. They're celebrating it. Now, I hope you see how sin has so tainted Herodias, her daughter, and Herod's heart so much now that they are even celebrating the death of a person. Church, that should never be us. Like, never be us. We should never celebrate death and destruction. Now, I'm not talking about Halloween. That's a whole different thing. So if you start thinking, well, Jared's anti-Halloween, you, you missed the point. Like, my kids are going to dress up and they're going to celebrate getting free candy. Y'all, okay? So just know that. All right? So I'm not talking about Halloween. What I mean is that when someone sins or is sinned against, we should never desire that they die as a result of it. Instead, what we should desire is repentance and forgiveness. That's what we should desire. Honestly, in our, in our community, like I've, I've heard people say recently about people that they just wish they would die. I have heard that. Because of the person's sin. And I get what they're saying. Like I understand. But how foolish. I deserve death and destruction. Because of my sin. But because of Christ. I've been forgiven. If Jesus took that attitude towards me. I'm not going to breathe another breath. So I'm very thankful for grace. I'm very thankful for forgiveness. Does that mean that we overlook everything. And we say that there should be no consequences for actions. That's not my point. What I'm saying is we should never applaud death and destruction. That should not be what we desire. Instead, we should desire repentance in life. 
So, however, unfortunate, however, the unfortunate reality is that Herod's sin did what sin does, and it led to death. Here, physical death, but we see we can see that play out in dozens or really hundreds or thousands of ways in our lives. So, Herod's sin led to superstition and paranoia, a hardened heart, more poor choices, death and destruction. And then fifth, Herod's sin led to grief among God's people. Herod's sin led to grief among God's people. Okay, Verse 12, short and sweet. It says, Then his disciples came, removed his corpse, buried it, and went and reported to Jesus. Okay, Remember, John was a man who was loved by his followers. He was loved by his followers, so they came and they held a funeral for him. They paid respects. They, they loved this man. So, they came... And buried him. Now, this may be obvious, but what we need to understand is that we should grieve because of sin. We know that sin leads to death. We should grieve because of sin. Why? Again, leads to death and destruction. Now, I hope you see how these disciples, they stand in stark contrast with uh, Herod and his party. Like, I, I, I used a word here a while back that I use this word juxtapose. Right where we get these two ideas set side by side for the sake of comparing and contrasting them. So we can see the differences clearly. Here on one side, we have Herod at his party with all these people celebrating death and destruction. And then on the other side, we have John's disciples who are grieving over death and destruction. Look, that should be the difference between us and the world. We should grieve over sin, not celebrate it. Okay, now that may sound obvious, but um, if you look at the world today... Not only does the world tell us that sin is okay, but the world tells us we should celebrate it. It tells us we should celebrate it. Um, not only do we see that here, but church, I just want to, I just want to say this can't be us. Um, I'm going to give a couple examples here, um, and I'm not trying to cast any stones. I just want you to know that I'm not trying to say that we condemn these people, or that even that if you're this person, that we don't want you here. I want you here, even if you're caught in whatever I just start talking about here in just a moment, okay? I want you here. Uh, I love you. I'm not trying to condemn you or say that you're going to hell or anything like that, because God's grace is bigger than whatever you've got going on. God's grace is bigger, okay? So that's not my point. But if you look at our society today, not only does it say that sin is okay, it tells us that sin is good. Um, my wife and I talked about a couple of different examples that I could use, and she's smarter than me, um, which you all know. Um, so she kind of tempered, tempered what I wanted to say just a little bit. But she pointed out a really good example here. Um, our culture will tell us that homosexuality is not only okay, it will tell us that we should celebrate it. Like, that we should applaud it. I mean, she, she, she pointed out, like, we have pride parades. There are pride parades where people are going around saying, hey, let's celebrate the fact that you can be you. You want to be gay? Well, good, go do that. You want to live in a, homose- you want to live a homosexual lifestyle? That's fine, that's good. Yeah, good for you. I'm glad that you're happy. Look, we're about to get shut down on Facebook, and I really don't care. Um, so just understand that. Uh, look, I know what the Bible says about homosexuality. It says that it's a sin. Okay, we should, we should grieve that. Not condemning people. Not saying if, if you have homosexual temptations or even if you've lived that lifestyle, like there's no hope for you. We should never be that way. There is grace and there is healing in Jesus. There is forgiveness found in Jesus. But what I think we can say is that we grieve over sin in our world. And just another example um, and this is one that maybe hits closer to home because I think most of you all probably agree with me on homosexuality. Most of you have read the Bible enough to know like the Bible condemns homosexuality. Um, okay, got it. Here's one that hits a little bit closer to home. And again, my goal is not to shame anyone or make anybody feel guilty, but this is something that I think even in the church, 
we tend to applaud. Okay? So just understand, I'm not condemning anyone. This is just an example of how we tend to applaud sin. Um, I have had some within the church, and really the world around us even applauds this and says that it's wise, but what about when people live together before marriage? What about that? Now, nowhere in the Bible does it say, thou shalt not live with someone before marriage. Nowhere does that say that. Um, But you all are smart people. Um, You know what the Bible does forbid, and those things tend to go with living together, okay? So I'm not saying that that always happens, but I would say that that's probably the majority of the cases. And there's a ton of pragmatic reasons for that. I mean, there's a financial aspect. There's the try it before you buy it mentality. There's the going, we're going to get married anyway. And there's other examples. And again, just want to make this clear. Not trying to condemn anyone. But whenever we start applauding that, saying, yeah, that's wise. Are we encouraging people, at the very least, are we not encouraging people to at least flirt with sin? Should we not grieve over sin? And reject it? I think we should. I think we should. So I hope that you can just see the point here. Like, there's a difference between us and the world and the way that we respond to sin. While the world applauds sin or even commends it, saying, that's wise, that's prudent, good for you, be you. The Bible says, repent. The Bible says, take up your cross and follow after Jesus. It's very different from what the world tells us. See, Herod's sin led to grief amongst people while the rest were applauding sin. So what? Well, I hope, I hope you can see that in each of these points, um, and I actually meant to put this in the notes, but I didn't. But you could easily remove right there where it says Herod's sin led to. You could easily just wipe that out and then put in its place your sin leads to. Your sin leads to each of these things. I mean, your sin will lead you to superstition and paranoia. We tend to think that everyone is just like me, but the truth is that not everybody is just like you. know, we've all been tempted in similar ways, but we are not all the same. And did you know that somebody who is caught in a particular sin tends to be paranoid of other people? Um, just, I'm just going to give an example, but cheating spouses tend to be paranoid about their spouse cheating on them. Uh, there's, a, there's a tendency towards that paranoia. Like, sin will lead you to superstition and paranoia again and again and again. Further, it will lead you to a hardened heart. Um, Over time, we tend to be desensitized towards our sin. Either like we say, well, it's really no big deal, or we think, well, I'm just stuck here, there's no way out, so I might as well just get comfortable in my sin. So we harden our hearts towards it. Then, your sin, it will lead you to more poor choices. Um, It leads you to other sin, compromised relationships. It leads to one thing after the next, after the next. And your sin will always, and I mean always, lead to death and destruction. It will lead to death and destruction. If not the destruction in your life, it will lead to the destruction in somebody else's life. In one way or another. And I don't just mean real physical death, but I mean in a broader sense. Um, Look, I don't know what God might withhold from you, your family, your friends, your church family, and so on because of your sin. We just don't know. But what is God withholding, and what destruction have we seen as a result of our sin? Your sin will lead to death and destruction. And assuming that God's people love you, which if they are truly God's people, they will, then your sin will lead to grief amongst God's people. And that's not a reason to hide. I'm not encouraging you to hide your sin so that you keep people from grief. Because the ultimate goal is not happiness. Well, you could say it's happiness, but happiness in Christ. I'll put it that way. Our our, our goal should be to know our Maker. To glorify God and enjoy Him. Look, 
It's not a reason to hide. The reason we should have grief is because, well, it's sin. And that should grieve us. In fact, not only would I tell you not to hide, I would encourage you to tell brothers and sisters about your sin. I don't, I'm not saying you've got to go to in, into explicit details or anything along those lines. That's not the point. What I do think is that we need to confess our sin to one another because that's what God's word commands us to do. If you go over to James chapter 5, verse 16, we are told right there, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effects. Look, why do I want you to confess your sins so that we can talk about one another, so that we can gossip about one another? No, it's so that we can pray for one another and we might find healing in Christ. I want you to pray for one another. So yeah, I want you to confess sin to one another. And I believe that's exactly what we do as a result of this passage. That's exactly what we do as a result of this passage here in Matthew. We realize the weight of our sin, the magnitude of our sin before an infinitely holy God. We realize the weight of our sin and we confess our sin to God and to one another and we pray for one another so that we may be healed. I don't want you to be condemned. I want you to be healed. So I would urge you, confess your sin to one another. And then we ask God to use us in spite of our sinfulness and we trust what His Word says. 1 John 1, nine. It says, If we confess our sin, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look, your sin is not bigger than God's grace. It just isn't. I don't care how big you think it is. If you think it's bigger than God's grace, you don't understand who our God is. God's grace is bigger. The encouragement I have for you today is this. Deal with your, the sin in your life before... The sin in your life deals with you. I urge you, deal with the sin in your life before it deals with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, God, I thank you um, for the words of John um, as he goes and he calls a sin a sin. And I'm thankful that Matthew has recorded this word for us and Mark has recorded this for us so that we might look and we might see the results of our sin in our lives. God, I pray that you would you would do what you would do, that you would teach us, that you would rebuke us, Lord, that you would call us out of our sin, that you would show us where we are in error. But not just that, Lord, but then that your word would correct us, that you would turn us and that you would use your word to put us back on the path that we should be following you, taking up our cross. Um, Lord, and I pray that you would train us in righteousness, that you would make us more like Jesus every day. Um, Father, that only comes as we deal with sin. Um, but Lord, what we know from your word is that we're not good enough to take care of our sin on our own. Um, that's, that's why you came. That's why you lived a perfect life. That's why you died. That's why you were raised. So that in your grace, so that in your love and your forgiveness, that we might, we might be made whole and that you might be glorified. So Father, for that today, we praise you. We thank you that we can have hope, not because we can be good enough, but because you're gracious enough. Um, so, Father, I pray that today you would help us, you would direct us, that you, by the power of your Spirit, you would convict us of sin, and that we would, we would in your power, we would turn, and we would follow after our Savior. Um, so help us today, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we're going to sing, um, but I would, I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't at least tell you, like, I love y'all, um, and I want to be support for you in any way I can. So if there's something in your life, I, I, I'm not telling you you got to come debt forward this morning. If you would like to, I'm always here to pray with you, to talk with you. Um, but if there's something going on, my phone number is in the bulletin. It's on our website. It's just about everywhere. Like, 
don't just keep it to yourself. The longer you sit in your sin, the easier it gets to sit in your sin. Deal with your sin before it deals with you um, because God's good. And Jesus came to bring that grace. Um, So please, don't try to do it alone. Instead, there's a body of people around you that want to help you, that want to love you, support you any way we can. So um, don't hesitate to reach out. As we sing, if you would like to respond, you're always welcome to come forward, and I'd be happy to pray with you now. Um, But just know that that invitation doesn't stop when we leave this room. That invitation is open just about any time. You can always text me. Don't get me wrong. You text me in the middle of the night. I I reserve the right to ignore you till morning. But um, you're always welcome to reach out. So let's stand and let's sing together.